Good morning. While our city kids are off to their programs, the Frontlines team will be coming around with Bibles. If you do not have a Bible and you would like to follow along with us today, or if you don't have a Bible and you would like to take this one home forever, just raise your hand and they will come around with one for you now. This morning we are reading from John chapter 2, verse 23, all the way through John chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, thank you, Alyssa, for reading us the scripture this morning. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be together. As always, um, I am so excited that we get to study the scriptures together every single week and, and to just have all of that text read for us. 
Um, it's such a beautiful this church. I'm thinking of people have been reading the scriptures together for many, many years and reading it publicly in that way. And it's one of my absolute favorite times, actually, as part of our Sunday gatherings, is actually to sit under the red word. And now I have the opportunity to teach it. Now, if you have been with us, you know that we are in the Gospel of John. We're a few weeks into it now, uh, into obviously chapter two, and we're headed into chapter three. Now, after last week, uh, I got a text from somebody and they said, hey, how do you make uh, light of the discrepancy in the John's gospel versus the other gospels regarding the location of the cleansing of the temple? Now, if you're a Bible nerd, you maybe uh, are like, whoa, that's, a, that's an interesting point. Like, uh, and this, this is the point, okay? So I'm going to try to make this clear. In John's gospel, the cleansing of the temple, which we looked at last week, which you can go and listen to on our podcast, the message there, happens at the beginning of the Gospel of John, rather than later in the Gospel, as some of the other Gospel writers account for it. And so if you're a Bible nerd, you're like, oh, this is really interesting. Why is that? Now, a few suggestions, and this will help some of us understand. Sometimes you're going to come to different details like this, or different locations of things as you go through the Gospels. And some people say, see, that's why I do not trust the Bible, because these things are in different places, and ha ha ha. But generally, there is a description and a reason for why these things are the case. So in the case of the temple cleansing, here are a few reasons that scholars and commentators suggest that they're in different places. The first suggestion, and this is the dominant perspective on the difference in location of the temple cleansing, is that John's emphasis in his gospel is more so teaching doctrine and theology and sort of the divinity, focusing on the themes and the divinity of Jesus, than it is about having a really neat and tidy chronological account. So in John, it's the same account attested in the other Gospels, but it's in a different location for John's intended purpose of writing it. Another suggestion is it's the proper chronological time. So in other words, the synoptic Gospels are wrong about its location, and John is right about it. That's an even fewer group of people that believe that. And then an even smaller group of people believe that, in fact, there were two temple cleansing. In other words, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he went to the Passover, many people believe that Jesus had three years of public ministry. He would have gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover each year. And so at the very first one that he went to, there he cleansed the temple. And then at the third one, he also cleansed the temple. So there's a few different reasons. And why I say this is that usually there is a good reason and good accounts as to why there are some discrepancies. And it doesn't force us or prevent us from actually saying, no, the Bible is legit and we can study it and understand its history. And there's good reasons that we have to trust it. And so if you are somebody that likes to study the Bible and you like a little bit more of the details, there you go as far as the temple cleansing. And at the end of the day, it doesn't change like huge things about it, right? Jesus is still the son of God. He still cleansed the temple, and we can have discussion about when, in fact, he actually did it. Make sense? Okay, very good. Thank you. Good, good, good. Very good. Let's have a moment to pause to be still, uh, check in with how we're feeling, and then we will uh, keep going this morning into our text today. And so, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and this opportunity that we have to gather to study your word, to learn more about you. 
And I pray this morning that you would challenge us. We thank you that you see us and you know what's going on inside of us right now. And so I don't need to know that, but you do. And so I pray that as I teach, that it would be your words and not my own. And that you would use, um, God, whatever you would have this morning for us to challenge us, to encourage us, God, and to, to send us forward and then send us out into the city again to love others with the good news of Christ as our motivation. And so we thank you for these things in your name. Amen. Well, a bit of a question to start us off um, today, and it's this, and it's an introspective question. So if you don't like focusing on your motivations or on your heart and those sorts of things, you might not like the question, but here's the question. Where do you look in your life for approval? Or where do you look in your life for identity? Some of us If we're honest about this question, some of us look for approval from other people. Elijah confessed that this morning as he was sharing his story today. He said, I realized that I was looking for approval from from other people in my life. And what he's meaning by that, likely, is that he was looking for approval from them, and then that would encourage his own identity. Where do you look for approval? Where do you look for your identity? Maybe for you, it's not necessarily in what other people say of you, but it's what God says of you. So you care deeply about his approval of you. And for some of us, that means that we're trying to live very obedient lives to God so that God will approve of us more than maybe we believe he already is believing in us. Some of us look for our identity or we look for approval in the things that we accomplish. And so we're working really, really hard so that we accomplish more or maybe we feel like we're not accomplishing enough. Others of us look for approval in uh, what others say about us. And it deeply matters to us what others think of us is connected to their approval, but more so what others say about us. Now, Jesus this morning is going to challenge every single one of us in the room, as he regularly does, and hopefully he does as you read the scriptures. Because Jesus, as we will begin and continue to discover, he doesn't just care about your external behaviors, he actually cares more about your heart. He cares about what motivates you. And repeatedly, he talks about a person's heart. And what he means when he says heart is he cares about your executive center, the thing that motivates you to do every single thing that you do. And so this morning, he is going to challenge somebody by the name of Nicodemus on the question of where do you look for for your approval? And so it's a good question to ask as we begin here. Where do you look for approval? With that, let's go to John 2, verse 23. Now, these verses that conclude chapter 2 are are transitional, transitional verses between the cleansing of the temple and then these conversations that Jesus is going to engage in from chapter 3 forward. So here's what we read, verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So John is telling us that as Jesus is doing miraculous things, as we talked about last week, the lingo of signs, people are believing in his name. They're believing in what they're seeing, and they're, they're kind of like, oh, this is kind of peculiar. Who is this rabbi? Who is this man? He's doing unique things that we haven't seen before. But we read this about Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. 
John is telling us something here about Jesus, and as I mentioned, these are introductory verses, and the thing that he wants us to know about Jesus is this, is that Jesus knows and sees you. As he's going forward, he's going to focus on some specific interactions and conversations that Jesus is going to have with people with diverse backgrounds and experiences. And John wants you and I to know, as he tells us his gospel account of Jesus' life, is that Jesus is not like anyone else. Jesus knows and sees you. So Jesus knows and sees the people that he is about to have conversation with. But as we apply it to our own lives, Jesus knows and sees you. He sees your heart motives. He sees your executive center. And so as you come and you gather here, as you go out in your life, you can't escape the knowledge and the look of Jesus. He sees you. He sees your heart. He sees your motives. And this is really important for us to understand. We are like plates of glass before his eyes. He sees what's going on inside of us, and therefore he's also the one that we can trust to take the best care of us. Because he truly sees. So John wants us to know this about Jesus. He knows and he sees you. With that in mind, let's look at the first of Jesus' conversations that we find here in John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, immediately we are introduced to somebody by the name of Nicodemus, and we're told some details about who Nicodemus is. We read first that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee means that he belonged to a strict sect of Judaism. It was a Jewish group of around 6,000 men who were committed to obeying every single law and commandment found in the Old Testament. 613 of them, in fact. 248 do's and 365 don'ts. They were so committed to obeying these 613 laws that they actually created other subsequent laws to help them keep the first 613. We read here that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. Many people believe that what they're speaking about is Nicodemus is likely part of the Sanhedrin, which is a smaller group of the Pharisees, a group of 70 men who are serving as a governing body for the nation of Israel, which means that they're sensitive to theological and doctrinal trends. And he's also someone that we're going to find out later. He's a teacher of Israel, meaning he's a person that Jews would come to and say, help us solve our disputes. Tell us how we're to understand the Old Testament scriptures. We then read that he came to Jesus by night. Now, there are a few different suggestions as to why he does this. Some say he wanted the cover of the night so that others wouldn't know that he was doing it. Others suggest that, well, the Pharisees would oftentimes have their doctrinal debates at nighttime. So that's why he's coming to them. Others say it's more of symbolic or metaphorical that what this is actually alluding to is the darkness of Nicodemus' own spiritual condition. Whatever it is, he's coming to Jesus by night to engage in a conversation with Jesus. We read that when he comes to Jesus, he says to him, Rabbi, which immediately signals that he has a level of respect for Jesus. 
And then he goes on, what does he go on to say? He says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with them. He senses that there is a peculiar nature to who Jesus is. Jesus is doing things that he hasn't seen before. He's trying to compare and contrast him from some of the prophets and some of the leaders of the Old Testament. And he's going, who are you? But he's likely not at the point yet where he's about to say, you are the Messiah. You are the sent one from God. So maybe Nicodemus is like yourself. Are you someone like this? Or do you know someone like this who's like this? Who's peculiar about who this Jesus person is? You would say you're a morally upstanding, law-abiding, good human being. You could be a Nicodemus. Well, he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi. And then what does Jesus say to him? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. (laughs) Are you following the conversation? Nicodemus hasn't asked a question. Yet Jesus provided some form of an answer. Jesus' reply is cryptic and it's kind of confusing. What is Jesus doing here? Well, as we said earlier, Jesus knows our motives. He knows our hearts. And so he immediately gives Nicodemus a blunt reply upon his first observation, likely indicating that the question that Nicodemus has, which is, what are the credentials that somebody needs in order to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says back to him, you need to be born again. What Jesus is alluding to is a spiritual rebirth. Or in other ways, this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. Think about again who Nicodemus is. He's saying, Nicodemus, your religious credentials aren't enough to get you into the kingdom. You need to be born again. Entrance into heaven is out of reach even for you, the most moral, upstanding, and law-abiding person. In other words, Jesus is telling Nicodemus that his approach has been wrong his entire life, and that even what he has done isn't enough for him to get in. Now, to a person like Nicodemus, when he thinks of the kingdom of heaven, he thinks about a future reality, a future eschatological reality. But notice what Jesus says here. He says that you can be born again now in the present and that it's something that you can now begin to experience now rather than simply something experienced in the present Now we see Nicodemus' confusion and how big of a deal this is of what Jesus is saying in his reply in chapter or verse 4. Look what he says. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's completely confused by Jesus' teaching. Right? Like, how would I do that? You wonder if he's kind of thinking through, obviously, the physical realities of how would I go about doing that in order to experience the kingdom of heaven. He's a complete misunderstanding. He's thinking physical rebirth is impossible. What do I do? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit... He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus gives us further detail about the how of this happening. This is what it means. Jesus is saying, he's not referring to a physical rebirth. I'm not thinking about a physical rebirth, Nicodemus. I'm thinking about a spiritual rebirth. And how does this spiritual rebirth happen? He says it happens by the Spirit. 
See, Nicodemus believed that if you were born a Jew and kept the law, that you would be saved, and that only such thing as blasphemy or extreme wickedness would keep you out of the kingdom. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying no matter who a person is, they are automatically kept out until they experience spiritual rebirth, until they have been born again. Now, there's some context of spirit and water in the scriptures. D.A. Carson puts it this way, Born of water and spirit signals a new begetting, a new birth that cleanses and renews. The eschatological cleansing and renewal promised by the Old Testament prophets. Now, this is interesting because Nicodemus will go on. He's confused by it, but yet what we learn here is that there is water and spirit in, in the Old Testament. So let's go first to Joel 2, verse 28. We read this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Ezekiel 36 goes on to say, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now remember who Nicodemus is. He's a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin. He should know these texts and he should know that this is what was promised to happen. Yet what happens? He completely misses it. And what Jesus is indicating is that God doesn't want people to clean themselves up. He wants them to be made brand new. He wants to remake and reshape us as new birth is conditioned on repentance, confession, and a transformation that happens through the Holy Spirit. Jesus continues, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. What he's saying is physical human birth produces people that belong to the earthly family, but not the children of God. He says only the Spirit can actually do this in the life of people. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you should have understood this, that God must give a new birth. You should not be surprised at this. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is further detail on how the rebirth or the new birth, the spiritual birth happens. And Jesus is saying this, entrance into the kingdom of God cannot be achieved by obedience or outward conformity. It requires an inward change. It is given by the direct act of God, just as the origin of the wind. Some of us maybe need to hear this repeatedly in their lives. I know I do. I've taught this text probably three or four times because of a verse 16 that's coming. Yet look what comes before it, what John highlights before it. Entrance into the kingdom of God cannot be achieved by obedience or outward conformity. It requires an inner change. It is given by the direct act of God, just as is the origin of the wind. You cannot save yourself. And many of us are trying with our obedience and our outward conformity to be approved of by God. 
and we struggle in the same way that Nicodemus does. Nicodemus, look at his response. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? He's shocked. He knows what Jesus is saying, and he just can't believe it. His entire foundation is being challenged and dismantled as the nothing in the Judaism that he knew offered anything like this. And what he wants is direction. In his context, converts to Judaism were, complete, were washed completely. They were given new clothing and were welcomed into the commonwealth. Jews, on the other hand, believed that their salvation was inerrant because of their lineage. So what is Jesus saying and why is he so shocked? He's saying not only is outward conformity and obedience inadequate for salvation, so is lineage and race. And isn't this a good thing? Yet he's shocked. Think about the racial reconciliation of what Jesus is saying here. Not just Jews are saved. Everybody must be saved. Everybody must experience a rebirth. And therefore, when you come into this family, there is now no distinction between Jew or Gentile, black or white. We are all one in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters. Some of us maybe believe that, well, we inherit our Christianity from our parents. <laughs> Jesus is saying, no, you don't inherit a Christianity from a parents. Some identify as Christians. Why? Because, well, my parents were. That's not how it works according to Jesus. A Christian is one who has a relationship with Christ, an intimate relationship with Christ. You need to experience rebirth. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How does Jesus respond and answer his question? He says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Jesus is calling Nicodemus out for his position and not knowing the Old Testament teaching of new birth. And it would be very easy for us to point our fingers at Nicodemus, but in what ways have we, if you're a follower of Jesus, misinterpreted the text to, to encourage our own biases? And Jesus is calling Nicodemus out on the same things. Don't start with what is your solution and make the text work in that way. Look at what the text says and allow it to inform your perspective. Jesus goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Essentially, Nicodemus, the writing has been on the wall for a long time. You just haven't listened to the prophets, and you've actually failed to believe who I am after the, some of the signs that you've already seen me complete and do. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. If Nicodemus has stumbled over the new birth and the wind analogy, how is he ever going to understand heavenly realities? And then Jesus says the only person that can truly tell us heaven realities is someone that's from heaven, the Son of Man, i.e. himself, so I can indicate to you what these things mean. You need me, Nicodemus. You need to believe that I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God, Nicodemus, for you to understand this all. Jesus continues by connecting the rebirth of water and spirit to then a well-known story from the Old Testament, and then he's going to point back to himself. Verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now a little bit of background, Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. 
tells a story that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And they begin to grumble and they begin to complain about God and what he has done. And as a discipline, God sends snakes that bite them. And these snakes and the venom that is within these snakes begin to kill the people. And the people cry out to God then and say, we are sorry, we should have not complained, we should have not grumbled. And so God says and instructs Moses, he says, I want you to fashion a a snake and I want you to raise it up on a pole. And when the people look upon this snake, lift it up onto the pole, the venom will no longer kill them and they will live. Now, why is Jesus referring back to this story that is so well known as we're going to see as it comes? But here's a couple points. And what Jesus is saying is as the bronze snake was the means by which God gave his people new life, he does so now by his spirit. The bronze snake was a a mean by which their life would be preserved. And what Jesus is now saying is that the spirit will be now the life preservation, bringing them to new life. But then secondly, as the bronze snake was elevated in the camp so that anyone who looked on it may live, so Jesus would be lifted up on the cross so that anyone then looks and believes in him may have eternal life. Do you see what he's communicating? He's saying, as that was the sign of way of of salvation and faith and protection and preservation, so is the Son of Man raised up on the cross. And that is where you now must look for life, not in your outward conformity and your religious observance and obedience. The following verses, 16 to 21 are now narrative explanatory reflections of Jesus. He wants to go deeper into what he's already said. Verse 16, likely the most well-known scripture in the entirety of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, I just gave you the context of verse 14 and 15 about the snake and what the snake is to represent and then point forward to as it relates to Jesus. We now ask the question of why would God raise up his son to be life for broken, sinful people? We get the answer. Why? For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. It's a claim of the intensity of God's love, to say so. It's also a claim of the demonstration of someone's love. For God loved the world in that he sent his only son to die. Love expressed, love demonstrated. So God sent his son into the world to save humanity. God sent his son to be raised on the cross so that anyone who looks to him might be saved. Why? Because God loves the world. This is a bit of an interesting point. Did For Nicodemus and for the Jews, they believed that God loved Israel. God loved the Jews. But who is now, Jesus saying, the Father and himself loves the whole world. Every background, every race, for God so loved the world, motivating him to send his son. 
verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, the word condemn maybe scares some of us. Here's what condemn means. It means to judge a person to be guilty and to be liable to judgment. It's a, it's a heavy word. Yet what is being communicated here for us? We read that the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come into the world to condemn the world. Why? Well, firstly, we are already condemned. And therefore, whoever does not trust Christ is condemned already. Jesus didn't need to come into the world to condemn the world because we as humanity were already condemned. We were already liable to judgment. We are like uh, uh, people on a train headed for a cliff. We are already condemned. So God sends his son not to push the train off the cliff, but to rescue them from going off of that cliff. Do you see what he's saying? They are already liable to judgment in that they are sinners who've turned away from me, turning to their own selves. Yet what does God do out of his love? He provides a way for them to be rescued, for them to be saved. And then secondly, what that means is that whoever believes and trusts Christ is therefore not condemned. It means that the perfect demands of the law have been fulfilled in Christ, and that the curse of sin no longer remains on those who then go and trust Christ. What this means is that those of us who continue to try to live perfect lives under outward conformity and religious obedience, and then when we don't do it, punish ourselves through guilt and shame, we're not believing the truth of the gospel that says you are not condemned. Romans 8 verse 1, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when you fall short because you're still a human being on this side of Jesus' return, you're forgiven for that. Christ has forgiven you already. He's provided every means necessary for you to find redemption and healing in Christ. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What are we being told in these few verses? Firstly, the person who loves the darkness practices evil, rebellion against God. And maybe some would say, well, I'm not outward rebellion. As I heard someone say recently, sin is delighting in anything other than God. Think about that. Sin is delighting in anything other than God, which is a form of rebellion, obviously, against God, not delighting in him and his goodness and his approval and what he says of you and the things that he has accomplished for you rather than what you're trying to accomplish for yourself. So the person who loves the darkness practices evil, but the person who does what is true loves the light 
the light which is Christ. The person who loves the darkness will practice evil, but the person who does what is true loves the light which is Christ. And then secondly, and this is huge, this is huge and so incredibly challenging. What we are being told, what Jesus is telling us is that the person who loves the darkness refuses the light due to their fear of being exposed. Whereas the lover of the light exposes themselves so that God's grace might be displayed. So the person that, that loves the darkness and does evil, they don't, they don't want to confess. They don't want to share their sin with other people because, oh my goodness, look what, I'll be exposed and how bad I am. Yet look what the person of the light does who loves Christ. They say, I want to confess. I want to tell other people how bad I am because then Christ will be displayed. If you don't expose the darkness, you won't see the greatness of the light. If we minimize the darkness, we then also will not see the greatness of the light. And so the person who's caught up in the darkness and, and that of sin and a life of sin and habitual sin and not wanting God to expose things says, I don't want to be exposed because I don't want people to think that I'm a bad person. They fear the exposure. They fear, well, I'll now not have the approval of other people. Yet the gospel says you can confess, you can share, you can be open, you can tell people your brokenness and your sin because then Jesus is displayed. You know, think about it when, when we try to you know, cover things up in the church, when we try to cover things up in our lives. We, we do this sometimes because we, don't, we, we do it as self-deprivation. You know, we don't, don't want people to see our, and survival tactics. We don't want to be exposed yet. What does that display to the world? Does it display the depth of Christ and his love and his grace when we keep that stuff hidden? What would it look like if we actually expose the truth of who we are? Because then who becomes more beautiful? Jesus. And the effects of the wind will be seen. You know, as we talked about the rebirth and Jesus uses the analogy of the wind while we struggle around its origin, we can trust that it's God who does the work and then the effects of the wind will take place in our lives. How do we respond, friends? First, I think we respond in, in repentance. I love this quote from Keller helping us understand the depth and the truth of the gospel is this, is that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. That is really an expression of the point here in verses 19 through 21. We are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. And Jesus is completely throwing a grenade on Nicodemus' understanding of what it means to be good and what it means to be accepted. And he's saying, I see into the core of your human heart and even your obedience, your external obedience is motivated by a selfish heart. And Jesus sees our motivations. He sees our motivations Yet what we attempt to do periodically in our lives and oftentimes at other points regularly is say, I'm a good person because I'm not a really, really bad person. 
And that prevents us from understanding God's love and his grace towards us. And what we need to come to understand is actually, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time in Christ, I can rejoice in what Christ has done for me because at the very same time, I'm more loved than you could ever understand. So if you're sitting and you might be feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you should be feeling conviction, not condemnation. Condemnation, as we said, is liable to judgment. Christ is taking care of condemnation. He's given the Spirit for conviction, which reminds you how deeply loved you are by God. It starts there, where you want to bask in the Father's love for you in Christ and change your outward behavior as the wind does, right? It certainly has an effect on us, but change our outward behavior because we revel in how much we're loved. It's like any true love relationship, whether that be between a friend or someone else, is that as you grow to understand the depth of their love for you and they grow to understand your love for them, your behavior will change. You know, I used the example of my wife. In the early days, there were things I wasn't willing to give up that I'm willing to give up today. A lot of that changed when I said, I do, in front of a room. It was actually outside, but in front of a group of people. But my heart has changed, right? That was when I was formally saying to everybody, I'm committing to this woman for the rest of my life. But even then, I was immature, and still am immature and am growing, but my motives and my heart is constantly changing. And that's why they say that, you know, for many people, the love grows as time goes on. And it gets better because you begin to appreciate. You know, I say sometimes when I'm giving the message at, at, at weddings, I'll, I'll, oftentimes couples will ask, could you focus on how Jesus changes a relationship in a marriage? And I'll encourage couples that you should offer forgiveness regularly because this person is going to constantly disappoint you over and over again. And Christ knew that about each and every single one of us, yet he chose to save you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, past tense. He did it before you existed. He saw every one of your sins that you would commit and he died for you anyways to show you the intensity of his love. The demonstration of his love is then sending Christ. And it cost, came at a great price and sacrifice to God to send his son. So we start with repentance. We want to turn and then faith. We can trust Christ. Trust that he loves us despite our sin and has done everything necessary to save us. Let us now respond in worship. We have people at the back that would love to pray with you. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never heard the gospel before, and you want to commit your life to following Christ, I'd encourage you to go to the back and sit with people who would love to sit with you. You and I are not saved by the things that we do. We're saved because of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. And God, it is heavy, but it also forces us to look at the beauty that is you, the greatness that is you. It forces us to look at the depth of your love. When we minimize our sin, we also minimize your love. 
So I pray, God, today that we as your people would be serious about repentance, that we would be serious about our sin, that we would not be scared to express and expose it so that you, Jesus, might be seen. May we not be people who love the darkness, but may we be people who love the light because the light exposes the darkness. It diminishes the darkness. And so we, Jesus, want to see you expose us And God, I pray that we would be a church, a confessing community that speaks regularly about what you have done in our lives. That God, when people think of Church of the City, they would not think of a group of believers who are hypocritical or judgmental, but a group of believers that are constantly throwing themselves at the foot of the cross so that others might look to you, the bronze snake lifted up, so that we might be saved and have eternal life. We thank you for your gift of love. And God, I confess my own struggles with approval. Even this morning, fear to share what is your truth out of fear of how will it land. I thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you've forgiven me for the ways that I'm seeking approval from people and from you based on outward conformity and religious observance. I want to fall more and more in love with you because you're already madly in love with me. In your son's name we pray. Amen.